I know this is going to shock you, but sometimes even Christians get mad. Every once in a while, I'll encounter, well, frankly, sometimes a lot of times, people get frustrated. They get angry. And, and so I've thought a lot about what is it that makes us mad, and there are some legitimate things that make us mad. There are all kinds of things that go, fears make us mad. There are all kinds of things. But you know one that is really significant among Christians especially is injustice. You know, we, we know a God who is right and just and good, and, and injustice, uh, we, we, we Christians have particularly sensitive feelings toward injustice. And sometimes it's kind of about us, but it's especially true when we see injustice that involves someone else, right? And, and I know of nothing that, that causes more in frustration among a godly people is when we see injustice because we know what justice should look like. Now, we've been going through a series where I've taken the story of the prodigal son, and I called it the prodigal gospel. And what I'm trying to show is how the different elements of that parable in the prodigal gospel are so significant in understanding not only of the gospel but of life. And I've illustrated each point by taking us back to an Old Testament passage because I want you to see that this gospel is timeless. It's rooted in the truth that's always been, been there and always been accurate. And the, the first week we looked at the fact that Jesus referred to God in the, in the prodigal gospel as Father. So we, I took you back to Moses' psalm in Deuteronomy 28 where he calls God Father and then he shows what God does as our Father. He gives us life. He provides for us. He protects us. He sustains us and he even disciplines us. In other words, Moses makes a point of showing how God as Father does exactly the same things that fathers should do. And that's why Jesus illustrates God with the picture of the Father. The next week, we looked at the fact that God's blessing to us, God's blessings to us are incredible and significant and should cause us to be grateful, but they force us to a choice. Because of all that God has done, that drives us to a choice. And we looked at Joshua 24, where Joshua took the nation of Israel into the promised land. And in the promised land, they, God provided cities they did not build and farms they did not plant. And these incredible blessings that they should be grateful for. But he said, you know, you still got to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua said. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a choice that God's grace provides. Then last week we looked at the prodigal, the, the younger son. And the younger son is exactly what we said. He is phenomenally blessed, but he's not grateful. And, and because he's not grateful, he, he, he steers away from God and all of God's plan for him. And we illustrated that in the book of Judges where the people had no king and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And we looked at a situation where Jephthah the judge was sent because Israel had gotten himself once again into trouble because it didn't exercise gratitude for what God had done and it made the wrong choice and it paid a huge price. They repented, but only for a time. This week, we're going to look at the elder son, the oldest. And he's kind of a typical firstborn. He, he's that guy that does, I know every service, people shake their heads because their big brother was a jerk. Okay, generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, the the firstborn is the one that tries to do everything right, right? 
So it's not accidental that Jesus, see, I'm already seeing shaking heads. Generally speaking, work with me here. Generally speaking, the stereotype of the firstborn is they try real hard, and the younger brothers and sisters go crazy. So, and that's kind of what happens here, all right? So Jesus takes this story of a, of a firstborn and a younger brother and uses it to illustrate the truth of the gospel. So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I know we've read it every week. I want to read it again for you because I think it's so significant. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. In the Old Testament, the oldest son got twice what all the younger children got. So this oldest, the oldest son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate. The younger brother would have gotten one-third when he demanded this. Now, the problem is the estate was primarily in real assets. In other words, land and things like that, cattle and 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 things related to agriculture. So this was not a small request. This would have meant that the father would have had to go about liquidating assets in order to give the one-third to the younger son. It also would have been a very significant embarrassment to the father because all the community would have said, can you believe? That kid, that, that kid, it's, it's like he wishes his dad were dead. He cares more about what his dad gives him than about his dad. So this is a humiliating request made by the younger son. And the father does it. Verse 13, not long after that, the young son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. That's what prodigal means, by the way, someone who is a spendthrift that throws away their money recklessly. Um. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He was starving. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to eat? And, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. What a beautiful picture of our father God. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son, the subject of our lesson today, was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and alive again. He was lost, and he is found. The older son, in many ways, is the real subject of the story. Because the older son, and by the way, uh, Tim Keller wrote a book on this, The Prodigal God, unbelievable book, one of my favorites. I got to hear Dr. Keller twice this week, pretty cool. Didn't get a chance to tell him what was wrong on one of the things, but I'm going to tell you, because he's really big dude. I'm not going to tell him, but I'm going to tell you where he was wrong. Um, incredible book, because he, because he makes the point. And he calls it prodigal God because in the whole idea of it, it is God that is so generous, incredibly giving. Just as the younger son spent away all of his stuff, the prodigal God lavishes his love on him. It's an incredible book. But he points out that the older son, in many ways, represents, well, he, he represents the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were those against whom Jesus was having his greatest conflict. How is that? He believed that you gained God's love by doing the right thing. He was a legalist. He was a Pharisee. He was someone who said to his father, look, I've always done the right thing. I've slaved for you in the farm. I've worked like a Trojan for you. And then he kind of stretches the truth, and I've never disobeyed you. Really? hyperbole even among the best, right? And this son of yours, notice he says, he's not my brother, who's thrown away all that you gave him, comes back, and you kill Bevo for him, and they have a party. And I never got a stinking goat to celebrate my obedience. Does that sound familiar? You know, it really does. Because natural to the human heart is the assumption that we get what we deserve. That somehow, if things are good, it's because we earned them. And if things are bad, then someone was unfair, right? The, the reality is that we, we naturally fall into this mindset of the Pharisees, which is it's a system of works. That I obligate God. He has no choice but do what I want when I do the right thing. And therefore, those who do the wrong thing deserve what they get. What's the problem with that? Well, first of all, are any of us good enough to obligate God? Is, is any one of us good enough to obligate God? Can any of us say with the older brother, with anyone who knows us standing nearby... I've always done the right thing? Of course not. Of course not. The reality is we all understand that none of us is good enough to obligate God. That love is always, love, hear me, love is always a function of mercy and grace. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 says, endures all things, bears all things, believes all things. Love is always a function of mercy and grace because everyone will disappoint you. No one ever deserves Gracious love. 
And yet this oldest son has fallen into the trap of thinking, well, I deserve what I got because of all the good I've done. And that son of yours, he doesn't even deserve a party much. He just doesn't even deserve a nice word. Look at him. It's Phariseeism. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't do that. Well, let me tell you how I do it. When I compare myself to other people and, and, and start thinking, well, I, I somehow deserve better, I'm doing that. The Bible says that everyone, every human being is made in the image of God and is an object of God's love. And that any human being that embraces Jesus Christ is the Lord's beloved for the rest of eternity. So that when I compare myself favorably to someone else and say, well, look at them, look at, look at all the things they've done, I, I, I'm revealing that I think it's all based on merit, not based on grace. See, that's fundamentally what religion is. Religion is about manipulating God, manipulating, uh, uh, it's, it's really magic, manipulating God by my actions to force Him to do what I want Him to do. But that's not what Christianity is. Uh, Christianity is a recognition that I cannot earn God's approval. I'm not capable of it. And I have God's approval simply because of His love and mercy and grace, which He demonstrated and bought with a price when He gave His Son on the cross. So that when, when I compare myself, I'm, I'm falling into that, that trap. When I choose not to love someone because they've hurt me, I'm acting as though somehow I deserve it. When I put confidence in my efforts rather than putting my confidence in God's love and mercy, I'm being the older son. Now, lest you think that that's only taught in the story of the prodigal, I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're continuing in the Old Testament. The older son thought he deserved the father's love because of his good actions. We're going to look in 1 Samuel where an individual thinks that what his, his good actions, because they're religious, deserve God's favor. In other words, it's not just doing good, it's doing religious good that particularly accomplishes what we want. 1 Samuel verse 13, chapter 13. Uh, oh, by the way, um, the Old Testament texts on this passage have a lot of numbers in them. Numbers are often problematic in the ancient Hebrew literature because they didn't use separate numericals. They used the alphabet to make numbers. And I'm not going to take the time to explain. Different translations have different numbers. I could explain it all to my satisfaction, whether to yours or not. I just don't have time, okay? So work with me if I read something and it's a different number from what your Bible says, all right? Just trust me on this. Ask Rocky Miller. He'll explain it all to you. Um, Saul was 30, according to NIV, years old when he became king. He reigned over Israel for 42 years. That's rooted in Acts chapter 13, verse 21. And Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 uh, were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent home. 
And Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all of Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. In other words, he divided his, his army, Jonathan picks a fight, and now Saul says, uh-oh, we're in real trouble. There are a lot of Philistines. He calls everyone to join him. The Philistines, verse 5, assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioters and soldiers as numerous as the sand of the seashore. In other words, they were way outnumbered. And they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. The Hebrews even crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. In other words, they ran. And Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were asking, uh, quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And previous in the book, chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel said to Saul, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you're to do. But Saul ignores that. So he says, verse 9, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, when I saw the men were scattering, he tips his hand a number of times here. Notice that his confidence is not in the Lord to win the battle. It's in his army. And I saw that you didn't come at the set time. He blames Samuel. That goes all the way back to the garden. You remember Adam said, the woman you gave me? Remember that one? Uh... Samuel says, I mean, Saul says, Samuel, you didn't get here when you said you were. Read a great quote this week. It says, people who are good at blaming others aren't good at doing anything else. And the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. In other words, he was focusing on the problem, not on God. Verse 12, I, th I thought, now the Philistines will come down against us at Gilgal, and I'll have not sought the Lord's favor. Oh, this is my favorite one. You notice what he does? He spiritualizes his disobedience. I did this for you, Lord. Now, I know we don't think we do it, but we really, really do. We Christians are often really good at spiritualizing our disobedience. Let me give you a simple example. We want to gossip, but we, gossip, but we sound, want to sound spiritual, so we say, can I share this with you so you can pray more intelligently? You know what I'm saying? Um, it's, it's part of the human condition that, that we can even take our sinfulness and cover it over with Jesus to make ourselves look better. And Saul here has, has blatantly ignored the prophet's instructions that he should wait until the prophet gets there and they together offer the sacrifices. And he, he blames other people. He even, he, he, and then ultimate sin is he says, 
I just needed to be spiritual here. I, ju I, just, wanted, I just wanted to be good and religious, so I went on and did the offering. See, we think we can obligate God by doing religious things. Lord, I go to church every week. Don't you owe me something for that? Lord, I, I brought cookies to the women's fellowship. Surely you owe me something for that. I made a mission trip. I put up with a stupid pastor. I make, make all kinds of list things that we can fall into that somehow we justify our disobedience with, and, and that's what Samuel's doing. But what does God say? No, you've sinned. You've sinned. Verse 13, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man. Notice what the right king is after his own heart. That's a hint. We don't obligate God by our actions. God looks for hearts attuned to Him. We don't obligate God by our actions. God looks for hearts that are attuned to Him. And He appointed Him leader of His people. Of course, that's David. And because you have not kept the Lord's command. If Saul had obeyed, his kingdom would have, been, would have replaced David in God's plan. But he didn't, and it didn't. Let me illustrate this one more time real quickly. In Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 10, the Lord is in a debate with the religious leaders because ultimately even the story of the prodigal is part of the debate with the Pharisees. And they're discussing dietary laws, and he says, you don't seem to get it. What you eat is not what makes you unspiritual. What makes you unspiritual is what comes from within you. It's your heart. All three of these stories illustrate how quickly we love to slide into thinking that somehow we can do things that do, do merit God's favor, that obligate God to do things for us. But the story of the prodigal, the prodigal gospel, is that we'll never merit God's favor. God loves because He loves. And we dare not ever treat God as if He owes us. That's why the gratitude was so big in the previous sermon. But what's particularly significant about the older brother is how his arrogance impacted his opinion of his little brother. Do you see that? Because he didn't see his standing based solely on God's mercy and grace, he felt free to judge his little brother and condemn him. When, when, when we judge others, we show the pride that doesn't, doesn't reflect the understanding that we are only objects of God's mercy and grace. When, when, when we are condemning of others as if we're somehow better, we reflect the fact that we've lost sight of the fact that it's only forgiveness by virtue of Jesus' death on the cross that any of us have a proper standing before God. Well, let me get right down to it. When we're not passionate 
about telling the people we run into, whether they're like us or not, about the gospel of Jesus, we sort of act as though somehow we deserved it and they didn't. Because if we really believed that Jesus died on the cross and the offer of salvation is is given to anyone, no matter how sinful, how broken they are, then why wouldn't we be desperate to fill these pews with people to tell them about what Jesus has done for them? Why wouldn't we be confident to go to other people and say, "Can can can I tell you how God looked past my brokenness and gave his son for me? Can I tell you how big his mercy and grace is that in spite of all the ways that that I bring shame to him, his mercy and grace is showered on me? Can I tell you that even those of us who told God to take a hike, when we finally came back to him, he ran to meet us on the road kissed us and had a party. See, I I think we all got a little of the elder son in us because we lose sight of the fact that it's only God's mercy that allows us to know him. It's only God's grace, his faithfulness and love that makes us the object of His blessing. And that's true of everyone you and I meet. See, what I wish had happened, because it wouldn't be so convicting, I wish the elder son would have run out with dad and said, I've been praying for you. I've been wanting you to come back to Dad. I've been wanting you to see the love of the Father. And I join you in celebration that His grace is sufficient for you. But instead, he sat smug in his pew. And thank God he wasn't like a sinner. God have mercy on us if we do that. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we can be pretty rough and judgmental and that we often forget just how much you've given to us. Force us to see that it is your mercy and grace that allowed us to know you and give us a passion for sharing that mercy and grace with others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.